All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us for a Tuesday edition of Christian Worldview with uh, Dr. Tony Bean. That would be me. Appreciate your participation. This is Tony Bean, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And I am currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville, South Carolina. Uh, special guest today, we are expecting Drew McKissick to call in just after 8 o'clock this morning. And then at 8.30 this morning, we're going to have a conversation with Senator Lindsey Graham. So you might want to stay with us today as we have a, a couple of interviews to bring your way that I think you might be interested in. Uh, all right. I wanted to give you an immigration upgrade update this morning. I think we'd start with that. Um, by the way, I'll be headed to Columbia today after the show. Uh, legislature's in session. Not a whole lot going on. I mean, right now, uh, there going to be some. There's going to be some legislation coming forth that would um, is going to try to bridge the gap between the House and the Senate when it comes to uh, pro-life you know, protecting life in the womb. Uh, we have, uh, of course, the election coming up in February of a new uh, South Carolina Supreme Court justice that's likely, uh, I think, going to be, that's going to be Gary Hill. The other two have, uh, candidates have withdrawn. And so that, that'll be coming in February. Um, and, of course, we're hopeful that this is going to be a conservative, um, originalist, uh, constructionist, type of appointment but uh you know i i mean with all fairness to everybody involved and that and that's that's really what i want to do here i'm not casting aspersions i'm not raising questions i'm just simply saying that just as with the united states supreme court uh nobody really knows what's what until a case comes before the court and so particularly a case involving life so we'll see how that uh how that transpires. If we can pass some legislation, this um, uh, legislative session that deals with the life issue, then we can see, of course, Planned Parenthood will sue immediately, and it will end up in the South Carolina Supreme Court, not the federal courts, because abortion is now a South Carolina issue. It's a state issue for every state. Uh, so that's something to pay attention to. Uh, parental choice is uh, another big issue that people are concerned about. And, and whether we're going to get a parental choice bill out or not, uh, not sure. With the controversy that's going on in the House right now, I mean, you still have about 20 of the Freedom Caucus that are not caucusing with the rest of the Republican Party at the moment because they won't sign the loyalty pledge that's been put forth. And so they're protesting by, uh, and the the Republican caucus is telling them, well, until you agree to this, then you can't come in. And there's accusations flying back and forth. Uh, Freedom uh, Caucus says that Republicans, the Republican Party, is trying to force them in a mold that they don't want to be in. And the Republican Party, the rest of the Republicans in the House. Um, including members of the family caucus, some members, and members of the rest of the House are saying, well, you keep moving the goalpost. We, we come up with what we think is a solution, and then you come back and say, no, we want this, which wasn't something that was wanted to begin with. Now, I have no idea. I mean, I'm not, 
again, um, because I don't go to the caucus meetings, and nobody does, and the caucus meetings uh, are secret in terms of what is actually said specifically in those meetings. So I have no idea um, what what's the, the truth here. I'm just telling you what the argument is and what the atmosphere is, and that can affect what legislation gets passed because you're talking about if you've got a block of about 20 uh, Republicans, if, if if the Democrats join them uh, to block something, then it's going to be hard to overcome. It can be overcome because you've got 88 Republicans in the, in the House, so that would mean that you still have obviously 48, uh, uh, excuse me, 58, if I can do the math right. No, that's 68. <laughs> 68 Republicans. Uh, my wife is laughing right now while she's sitting there doing whatever else she's doing. Um, that'd be 68 Republicans left that would could be together, but when you put all the Democrats with the 20, then that makes it a lot closer vote. Not that they would vote that way, but that's a possibility. If the Democrats strategically were able to maneuver to join uh, the protest vote, then that could be considerable. So all that's going on down in Columbia. Uh, big, big surprise politics. Uh, this is the session. This, this is what happens when the session comes along. And, of course, Republicans right now are divided. We're divided on the national level. Uh, we're divided here on the state level. Um, we've got uh, essentially reorganization coming up in February. Um, there are those who want to replace the current Republican Party with my SCGOP or something the equivalent of that. That's that's um, that prominent in Greenville. Uh, they want to make strides, take over other um, Republican county um, control in, say, uh, Anderson, um, Spartanburg, other places here in the upstate, and make as many gains as they can across the state because they believe that uh, Republicans in general in South Carolina are all corrupt and none of them are doing what they're supposed to. And so, of course, the pushback is coming from those Republicans saying, look, we've been we've been passing conservative legislation. We've been, um, you know, and, and we've been doing what we're supposed to do. And we don't deserve to be kicked out of leadership positions. And so this is the. This is the divide. It's the rip within the Republican Party, and that's surface view of it, obviously, because um, it's it's more complicated than that. There are personalities involved, and there's stuff going on underneath that's driving some of this. But um, in the next few months, you know, I I expect it'll be ironed out to some degree um, with reorganization, and I I don't know how long. I would assume that at some point um, the Freedom Caucus in the House will become satisfied enough to rejoin the caucus and be able to continue, you know, to function with the rest of the Republicans. But I don't know that for a fact. Uh, That's just, I I would think that cooler heads will prevail and that at some point the party will be unified again over in the House. I don't think this kind of thing is going on over in the Senate but our problems over in the Senate are that we have some senators who have run as conservatives that are behaving less like conservatives and more like people driven by agendas. And that's, 
that's not a good thing. I mean, we've, we've had that issue. The Senate's always been difficult to get bills through. We had a major election back in 2020 in South Carolina where, of course, uh, Joe Biden became president. But in South Carolina, we made some major gains, particularly in the Senate. Uh, Senator Kimbrell, Senator Gambrell um, were elected, others, and it, it, it moved the needle in the Senate in a, in a much more conservative direction. But we're not quite to the point because of some surprise defections in the Senate, people that we thought were going to be leaning more conservative that have, particularly on the life issue, backed up off of that. Um, you know, we're, we're still at a stalemate over there. So let's say that we get some kind of uh, pro-life bill out of the House that is uh, that takes into consideration objections that the Senate had before. Maybe this House bill that comes out, and I'm speculating here, maybe uh, a House bill comes out that includes, for example, something like fatal fetal anomaly or something that the Senate was insisting on that doesn't necessarily mean that the Senate is going to embrace it or even take it up because there doesn't seem to be the same urgency over there, um, particularly among the leadership in the Senate, that there is over in the House to get something done. All right. When we count immigration numbers, we begin with fiscal year, and fiscal year begins in October as far as the federal government's concerned and as far as counting immigration, illegal immigration encounters at the border. So it's a new month. Here we are getting close to the end of January, and that means it's a new record for all-time encounters at the southern border. Over 250,000 immigrants were detained for the month of January, um, and that number was released late Friday. Actually, that must have been for December because we Obviously, January is not completed yet. So the number was released late Friday. So in December, that's that's correct. It would have been the number for December. Seven, And, and this is in addition to the 250,000 illegals that were encountered. 17 people on the government's terrorist watch list were detained. Now, that brings to the total, that brings the total number since October to 38 of the country's watch list terrorists that have been detained. Um, during fiscal year 2022, border agents detained almost 100 people on the terrorist watch list. Now, to put that in a little bit of comparison, during the Trump administration, that number never rose above single digits for the year. And what we are right now, if this level of detaining terrorists on the watch list continues at the pace that we've set since October, that's going to mean we'll be up over 150, which would be just a stunning number. It, it, it's a number that dwarfs any number that we've seen since the terrorist watch list was established uh, right after 9-11. So this is, this is the kind of border that we have right now that we're being told by the Biden administration is secure. And we're being told that the Biden administration is taking steps to make it even more secure. Uh, now, those new measures with the quotas from a handful of countries uh, have, have not gone in—they've gone into effect. But we won't know until next month when we see the numbers 
um, if it's had any effect on the number of encounters at the border. And if it has any effect, it's expected to be very small, not very much at all. So that, so, so what, what's being done about this? I mean, here we are with the worst situation that we've ever had at the border. We're seeing record numbers of, of illegals that are crossing. We're seeing people that want to hurt us. I mean, you don't get on the terrorist watch list by having a terrorist watch that you uh, got in the mail or that somebody gave you for retiring from al-Qaeda. You, you get on the terrorist watch list because you're being looked at. You've done something. You've got a record. You've, you're connected to, in some way, terrorist activity. And it's been established that you would like to do harm to America and to Americans. And so what, what, what is being done about this? I mean, this is, it's incredible that we're getting numbers like this and everybody's just acting like, well, it's a, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. You know, it's a beautiful day for a neighbor. Problem is, all our neighbors are coming across the border. And pretty soon, that makes it not a very beautiful day in the neighborhood. Some of the people that want to come into our neighborhood want to blow up our houses and hurt our children and hurt us. I mean, it's, and, and I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here. I'm just giving you the information that's readily available to every American. Um, and this is a total and complete breakdown of anything that resembles order at the border. And yet we just roll merrily along month to month and nothing gets done about it. We've had 5 million illegal encounters since Joe Biden has been president. 5 million. That, that's an astronomical number. That's, that's chaos. That's a border that's completely out of control. And everybody knows it. And it doesn't matter who lies to you next. Now, one of the things that the Republican-controlled House wants to do about this is they want to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. And believe me, if I believed that for a minute that we could get him out of office, I would be 100% behind impeachment. But to go through that and to get some kind of impeachment trial in the House with the slim majority that Republicans have, I don't even know that they could get impeachment and impeachment investigation launched. Maybe. Maybe the votes are there. Um, I suspect that the reason they haven't launched one already is because they don't know if they have the votes and they're trying to whip them up or they're trying to figure out what's what. But even if we impeach Mayorkas in the House, there is no way that he's going to be removed from office because the Senate, if you remember, when you impeach somebody, they have to vote on this too. And they're not going to impeach a Biden administration official while Democrats have control of the Senate. That's just not going to happen. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, yes, an, an investigation would reveal bad things going on for for Mayorkas, and he deserves to be kicked out of office because he hasn't really done anything to stem the illegal immigration problem at the border. And in fact, according to um, Lisa Re uh, Laura Reese, excuse me, she's director of the Heritage Foundation's security team, and she's not just somebody that Heritage went out 
and found at a university think tank. She formerly served as the acting DHS deputy chief of staff for uh, the Department of Homeland Security. So she has experience in this. She knows what she's talking about. She's seen the problem up close from the agency that's responsible to keep immigration at a manageable level. She supports impeachment, and she says the following things are true about Mayorkas, and it means that he deserves to be removed from office. He's lied to the American public. Well, we know that. In, in how many ways? I mean, let, let's count the ways here, at least a couple of them. One, he says every day, every day that he opens his mouth and says the border is secure and that we don't have a crisis at the border. That's a lie. That's a demonstrable lie. The numbers don't lie. People can lie, but when you look at the statistics, you, you can't get around the fact that the border's in chaos. The other thing that he lied about was the whipping of immigrants by Border Patrol agents. That's one of the reasons that you know morale is so low. Remember that controversy? We had pictures of Border Patrol agents on horseback, and it, the pictures were taken that made it look like they were whipping immigrants and driving them. And it, it, None of that was true. An investigation discovered none of that was true, but there was nothing really done about the fact that we were lied to about it by the Secretary of Homeland Security. No less. I mean, these are not underlings of the Department of Homeland Security that are going out and just telling whoppers. This is the man himself. And so, you know, that's number one. Number two, he's lied to Congress. I mean, in the same in the same way that he tells lies to the American people when and, and it's one thing, by the way, to lie to the American people when you have a cabinet level position. Now, that's a terrible thing because, obviously, the American people are the people that put you in office. They didn't put you directly there, but indirectly by electing the president of the United States. So, but, but to be called up to Congress and just lie to the elected officials, telling them the border is secure, telling them all these terrible things that border agents have been accused of, uh, that, that's a... I mean, that's kind of a double whammy. Because he's lied to Congress and because he's lied to the American people, he's lost the trust and faith of the American public, and certainly he's lost the faith and the trust of the Border Patrol agents. I mean, their morale is extremely low because the guy who is their boss is against them, and he's against them doing their job. He's also... I mean, and this is probably the chief impeachable offense because I don't know that there are a whole lot of people in government who at some point don't lie. But the chief impeachable offense to me is that he refused to obey the law when it comes to mandatory detention and removals. In other words, there, there are some people that once they step across that border, they're supposed to be detained and deported, and they're not, that's not happening. He's, he's not enforcing that law because that's not what his party, his president, and the administration he want, he works for wants. They want record illegal immigration. They want people pouring over the southern border because they believe they're building an electoral base that will make them undefeatable and take Texas and move it into the blue category. That's the big plan. So far, that hasn't worked. But... The plan's not 
done yet. I mean, it's still in process. The other thing that he's doing that's an impeachable offense is that he's encouraging asylum fraud. He's, he's basically um, allowing asylum seekers to fill out a form, not really doing any investigating to find out if they had, have legal, legitimate reasons to, to, to claim asylum and allowing them to enter the country. All right, Wayne's on the phone, wants to talk about this. Go ahead, Wayne. Yes, I was in Argentina in December, a country where you have to change your U.S. dollars in the middle of the street. That's just how bad the situation is down there. But when I went across the board into Chile at the 13,770-foot Yama Mountain Pass, the sign in the Argentine Customs Office said in Spanish, and I translate for you, without customs, you don't have a country. Yeah. That's, Thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah, well said, Wayne. I appreciate you. Look, without a border, there's no country. Countries that don't have borders are not countries. They're just territories that are being filled by people who are not citizens. And look, I, again, I'm a guy who I believe every person, illegal or legal, needs to be treated with compassion and respect because it's not that— Yes, they're breaking the law, but it's the government. The people that need to be held accountable is the, by the Biden administration, Alejandro Mayorkas, and, an, and everybody at the administration who is creating the situation where they're allowing people to come in illegally. I mean, if you were, look, if you were suffering in some third world dictatorship run country, where you were afraid all the time and your family, it was almost impossible to support them because the economy is so bad, and you had half a chance, if if you were getting the signals in those countries that the Obama administration, I mean the Biden administration is sending out, then you would try to figure out a way to cross that southern border too. Now that doesn't make them um, not, you know, they're responsible, they're culpable. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that they're not. But I'm also trying to get us to understand that as Christians, we need to have we need to treat them with compassion while we are adjudicating fairly and according to the laws on the books their case. If they have a legitimate reason to be in the United States, they should be allowed to stay. If they don't, they should be deported. In the meantime, they deserve care, they deserve medical treatment, they deserve food and water, and they don't deserve to be locked up somewhere uh, in deplorable conditions that are worse than even the Obama administration forced immigrants to stay in while their cases were being adjudicated, if they ever are, if they're not just released into the country and told to come back at some future date that they will never adhere to. So final thing about this is Republicans have got a bill in the House called the Border Safety and Security Act, but it's getting pushback even from those within the Republican Party. Tony Gonzalez says, Representative Gonzalez, I should say, basically says that in his read of the bill that it would ban all asylum claims, including legal claims. And he says that goes too far. The asylum laws are on the books for a reason. And so that if we're going to pass legislation, we need to have some asylum seekers allowed into the country, but that needs to be tightly monitored. And even if this bill, even if this bill were to pass the House, it has to pass the Senate. 
and that's not going to happen. Look, we're not we're not going to get meaningful legislation over the next two years. Uh, the best the House can do is to stop the nutty stuff that the Biden administration wants to do. That's that's it. Just put up a hand and say we're not going to turn the United States into what the former Soviet Union looked like. Not on our watch. Um, the rest of the stuff, there's no way that we're going to get things through the Senate. Okay, pretty soon in the South Carolina House, uh, we're going to be starting up the cannabis wars again. Uh, there's going to be a major push to get medical marijuana approved in South Carolina so that the red carpet can be rolled out for recreational marijuana. Just in case anybody has any doubt, um, I want you to lean into the radio here for a second. And I want you to listen to me. Medical marijuana is not the goal. Medical marijuana is the stepping stone. Medical marijuana sets the stage for recreational marijuana. The state of South Carolina cannot make any money off of medical marijuana. In fact, it's probably going to cost the state. We're not going to take in enough money through licensing and registration and all the things that will take place through DHEC to pay for a medical marijuana program. So if you want to really enrich your state coffers through taxes, then recreational marijuana is the ticket. Um, I've been, believe me, I, I, I know what I'm talking about here. I've been in Columbia uh, when all of these debates are going on. You've got lobbyists who are spending a lot of money trying to get medical marijuana passed, and there's just no, there, there's no benefit ultimately for the lobbyist in terms of the people that they're lobbying for, the marijuana industry, to simply have medical marijuana available. So let, let's, let's establish the fact, and let's just be honest, uh, there's nothing, nothing wrong with being honest as we debate these things. In fact, it helps. Let's just be honest that the end game here is for South Carolina to look like Colorado when it comes to full recreational marijuana available, and we tax it. And I mean, obviously, you had Joe Cunningham who just ran on that. Now, he ran on medical marijuana, but I, again, full recreational marijuana is the end game. Um, and no one wants to look seriously at all of the studies that are out there that indicate that marijuana has a dangerous side to it. You know, it's almost like we could go back to the 1940s and 50s when cigarettes were being pushed to everybody as something that was safe. It was even considered uh, sometimes to have health benefits, to smoke. Um, and now we know, of course, all of that was a lie. It was being covered up by the tobacco companies. They knew that cigarette smoking was bad for your health. And the same process is going on right now with medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. All of these benefits that we're supposed to get are going to evaporate and disappear like a snowball in July when they actually get the legislation passed. And people are smoking marijuana on a regular basis long enough for the long-term effects to be detected. And by then, it's going to be too late because we're going to be addicted to the money, not only to the marijuana, but the money that comes in from selling it. Okay, now, the other thing that people are being lied to about is the effect that medical marijuana has on relieving pain. 
So there's a brand new study out there. Um, John Stone Street was talking about this breakpoint yesterday. If you get a chance, go back and listen to the breakpoint podcast. It's only about three and a half, four minutes, and it's it not only talks about this new study, which proves that basically demonstrates that taking marijuana for pain is a scam, uh, but it also brings up other studies that have shown some of the other ill effects of marijuana, of smoking marijuana. So here's here's the study, and this is this study was published in Jam in JAMA, which is. I mean, this is the standard. This is the gold standard for the medical community. This is the Journal of American Medical Association. Researchers analyzed the results of 20 double-blind placebo-controlled trials testing both synthetic and natural cannabinoids. The trials included 1,459 participants. So this is not some minor study somewhere. Uh, that was done out of the back of somebody's Volkswagen van uh, where you had 20 people that were engaged in this. This is almost 1,500 people that participated. Uh, the, partip- the participants were between the ages of 33 and 62, and they had neuropathic pain, multiple sclerosis, or other types of pain. Now, neuropathic pain is just simply pain that's caused it's it's pain that is not directly related to cancer or some biological or viral um, uh, outcome or uh, experience that you're having. It's caused by neuropathy. It's caused by, um, you know, a lot of different factors can cause neuropathic pain, which is some people are, are say that it's generated in the brain. But uh, look, I know that there's genuine pain that's being experienced by people that are using cannabinoids to treat it. I mean, I, I, I get it. I mean, I'm 65 years old. Um, I live with pain, a certain amount of pain. I mean, you, if you continue to try to work out, walk, lift weights, do whatever, um, or play tennis or whatever you're trying to do to take care of yourself as you age, you're going to experience joint pain. You're going to have muscle pain. I mean, it's just part of the process. But whether or not these cannabinoids can have anything to do with that or not is certainly in question. All right. The placebo response amounted to 67% of the pain relief associated with genuine cannabinoids. Okay. Now, a placebo is, is a nothing. It's a sugar pill. Okay, it doesn't have any medical benefit whatsoever. But you don't know when you're in a double blind study whether you're getting the placebo or you're getting the can the the cannabis. And so you, you they, then they're testing to see is it the cannabis or is it the idea of the cannabis that's making people better. So according to the lead author, Karen Jensen, a senior researcher in the pain neuromanagement lab um, at um, the Kalinska Institute in Sweden, according to Karen Jensen, uh, this is when you've got 67% of those who are on the placebo that are saying that they're getting pain relief, then they think the pain is being relieved because they're getting a cannabinoid. They're not. And so it's, 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 a, it's a psychosomatic response. 
The plac- uh, let, me, let me go on here. Previous research has shown that the placebo effect can be extremely powerful, rivaling common pain-relieving drugs such as ibuprofen or even morphine. That's according to Catherine T. Hall, a placebo researcher at Harvard Medical School. The response is strongest in more neurological and psychological conditions. Placebo effects appear to have little impact on the outcome of clinical trials to treat cancer, viruses, or bacterial infections. Now, again, psychosomatic or psychological pain is pain. But it is pain that's that's oftentimes caused uh, by long-term type sufferers, with arthritic pain. I mean, and there's there's no question that they're in pain. That's not I'm not suggesting that they're not. What I'm saying is that they think so strongly, they they've been convinced that if they can just get those cannabinoids that their pain is going to get better, that 67% when they take a placebo get exactly the same effect. The placebo effect doesn't mean a drug is necessarily ineffective, but it does mean that it calls into question whether or not that drug is actually receiving, uh, is, is relieving the pain, or is it the idea of the drug that's making people think that they're better? And a lot of this is tied to public opinion. It's tied to news coverage. Uh, while researchers couldn't prove that news coverage contribu- contributed to the placebo effect, the results show that scientists need to be extra rigorous in their clinical trials of treatments that get a lot of media attention. Yeah, I mean, you're you're being told testimony. You got people testifying in subcommittees. Oh, I I I was in all this pain, and now I've got my cannabis. I'm I'm smoking cannabis, or I'm I'm I've got the cannabinoid oils, and and now my pain is gone. People hear that, and they have an expectation that if they do the same thing, their pain is going to be gone. And it actually affects whether or not they have pain. So is it the drug? Or is it the idea of the drug? And if there are negative effects, which there have been numerous negative effects documented by scientific experiments of cannabis on people who are taking it for whatever reason, recreationally or for pain, then is it really worth it to risk all of that if all you have to do is believe that the thing is helping you and you can take a sugar pill and get the same result? I wonder if anybody remembers the big Time's Up movement in Hollywood. Remember that? When Harvey Weinstein was being charged with all the bad things that he's done. Of course, now he's been convicted of a lot of those things. Um, These high-profile actresses, I mean A-level, A-list actresses, a ton of them, got together and formed this group called Time's Up. It was the Me Too movement. It was going to be the apex of, of their effort to make sure that women were not harassed, that we were going to do away these women that were being harassed by directors, by producers, by other actors, by whoever, um, they were going to be protected. And Time's Up was going to generate the funds to, to help protect them and raise awareness of the problem in Hollywood. Well, people like, if you're wondering, like what A-list actresses are we talking about here? Natalie Portman, 
uh, Nicole Kidman, Natalie Larson, Meryl Streep, Oprah, Reese Witherspoon. I mean, the the list goes on and on of the people. Reese Witherspoon was really all in on this because every time pretty much anybody put a microphone in front of her, she was talking about Time's Up and all the good that it was going to do. Well, it turns out that the whole thing was pretty much a scam, which they they started with $24 million, and they had a big kickoff at the Golden Globe Awards. And the goal here, of course, again, was to change Hollywood. It was to change the industry's culture. But while this group was touting its commitment to protect women who were facing harassment, two of its leaders, Roberta Kaplan, who's the founder and chairwoman of Time's Up, consulted with Governor Cuomo on an op-ed to discredit Lindsey Boylan, a Cuomo aide who came forward and prompted 10 other women to come forward and accuse Cuomo with harassment. So you've got an organization that was founded to protect women, and they're helping high-profile Democrat men to avoid or to discredit women who come forward and accuse them of harassment. Now, in case you're wondering, the New York Attorney General's office got involved, and they determined that, in fact, Cuomo did harass these women. And so it turned out to be a true thing, not just a false accusation. So not only was Roberta Kaplan, who was the founder and chairwoman involved in this, the CEO for Time's Up, Tina Chen, also leaned in to help Cuomo against the charges. So Time's Up staffers, at the same time, were instructed not to issue statements in support of Boylan's claims. So here's legitimate claims against a Democrat governor, and what do you, what do you have? Well, you, you, you have an organization that was founded to help women who are victims of harassment. They are leaning in to protect the high-profile Democrat man against the women who allegedly, validly accuse them, at least according to the New York Attorney General's office. So, and, and all of this came out because of an investigation by the New York Post. So they, they deserve kudos. Um, so Roberta Kaplan and Tina Chen decided to step down, and the rest of the board said, nope, we're, you know, this is a setback for us, but we're going to relaunch, we're going to uh, do a major reset, um, and that never happened. None of the founding members spoke out about the Cuomo affair, um, um, several other high-profile A-list actresses decided to resign from the board, and, and the board never really got to the point where there was a reset or a, or a relaunch. And in the meantime, while all of this was going on in terms of the Times Out board and the Times Out program actually not helping women— you have another investigative story by the New York Post that revealed where Time's Up spent most of its money. And it wasn't helping women who were victims of harassment. It was on large executive salaries, over-the-top star-studded events. Uh, in the first year of its operation, Time's Up took, nearly, took in nearly $4 million, but they spent, out of that $4 million, they spent three hundred thousand dollars 
on helping women who raised accusa- accusations of harassment. So that's, that's not even 10% of the money going to the, the purpose for which it was raised. The rest of the money went to high-price uh, retreats at a spa near L.A. Now, they were supposedly having a, a retreat to reshuffle and reorganize and relaunch, and they decided to have that retreat at one of the most expensive retreat centers near L.A. that happened to also be a spa. Uh, they spent a ton of money on public relations, and a lot of the money, about a million dollars of it, went to a multinational law firm that's known for lobbying on Capitol Hill. So instead of actually helping women, they funnel that money into trying to get lawmakers to do whatever was on their laundry list of things that they wanted to get done. Well, Time's Up has now run out of time. They've decided to close down, shut the whole thing down after five years, and they accomplished absolutely nothing. They raised a lot of money. They accused a lot of people. They uh, pretty much ran a scam for those who were involved in the Time's Up movement or the Time's Up program, they were able to raise money to send them on retreats and pay big salaries and pay lobbying firms, but not much else. They had about $1.7 million left over, so they gave it to, a, um, I think, a, a nonprofit that tries to help women with harassment issues. But once that money's gone, uh, then that's going to be the end of it. That's going to be the end of the Time's Up. And this thing, this was all over the news. If you remember when this whole thing started, I mean, it was, you know, they were going to change the world and they were going to really hold a lot of people accountable. Well, it turns out instead of holding people accountable, they ended up defending high-profile Democrats who were accused credibly of being involved with sexual harassment And it was all politics and hypocrisy. So the whole thing ended up being a scam, and now it's gone away. This is what happens. This is when progressives lean in, raise money, it turns out to be a nothing burger, and then nobody ever hears a word about it. I mean, it it just disappears. Well, I want you to understand that you know, listening listening to this radio program, we're going to try to dig into these things from time to time and find out what really happened with these high-profile progressive pushes that raises a lot of money and doesn't really do much for the people that they claim to help. But again, that's kind of a synopsis of the entire Democrat Party. They raise a lot of money, they make a lot of promises, And what we get are progressive policies that are never going to work, waste a lot of money, and end up not helping the people at all that they claim to help. 